Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Marketing is the Product podcast. I'm Brandon Rollins, here today with my co-host, Pearson Hibbs, and special guest from StartWord Consulting, Maureen Mwangi. So I, I want to kick us off um, on a really positive note just by reading your bio right off of the uh, one-pager which you provide to us, because I think this is going to do a really good job of describing who you are and what you've done really quickly so we can jump right into questions. All right, here we go. So Maureen Mwangi grew up in Kenya where entrepreneurship was not the norm. In fact, her mom and dad were the only entrepreneurs that she knew. As a little girl, as a little girl Maureen listened with fascination as they discussed their product strategies around the dinner table almost every night. As she got older, she became acutely aware of the financial freedom business ownership afforded her family, along with access to more opportunities. Maureen quickly learned that the secret to her parents' business success was reputable, trustworthy, product-based brand that they created. While others were taking shortcuts and selling commodities on the cheap, Maureen's parents focused on developing a reputation that was unparalleled in their market. Her curiosity for building breakout brands became the seed for what would ultimately become her voyage overseas in search of higher education in the U.S., Years later, armed with a master's degree in marketing, Maureen quickly ascended to leadership and began to build some of America's most beloved brands, from Lay's to Chobani to L'Oreal to Dove. I'm just going to let that one sit there for a minute. (laughs) She mastered the billion-dollar brand building strategies that most entrepreneurs never have the resources to access, and in doing so, she discovered her zone of genius, the rare ability to connect with the market and turn real data into brand growth strategies that drive multi-million dollar growth. Today, Maureen is one of the most sought after brand growth experts because of her unique track record for launching and scaling recognizable brands. She is the creator of Big Brand Academy, the, prof- the Product Profit Lab, and StartWord Consulting. She may not be a shark just yet, but she's a big fish her clients need to become market leaders in their category with real data-driven brand growth strategies that stand the test of time. This work f- fuels her passion project, Taji Foundation, I hope I pronounced that correctly, a nonprofit organization she created to support boys in Kenya to get the education they need to lift their families out of poverty and build generational wealth. Amazing. Such a nice introduction. Thank you for doing it so well. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I mean, this is, there's so much here that I want to ask about. And I guess I'll just start with something, something basic. So you say that your parents were entrepreneurs in Kenya, which, um, as you describe it, is not the norm. So first of all, what what exactly did they do as entrepreneurs? So my parents have a home repair company. So in the U.S., it's synonymous to a Home Depot, Lowe's, and they literally sell building and construction materials. They've done this for over 25 years So it was actually the business that my grandfather used to run when he was alive. And so he handed it over down to my father. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's generational wealth. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a family business. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to imagine that when you're, when you're raised by entrepreneurs, that has a pretty profound impact on you as a, as a child, what kind of things did you learn from them that you don't think you would have learn from anywhere else? I think the two things that my parents taught me, and that's a really great question because everybody asks me why I'm able to do the things I'm able to do. Number one is grit. Because like you read in my bio, um, 
at the point in which my parents' business was scaling, the markets in Kenya had actually opened. So it was so much easier now to travel to places like China, where you could actually import products of a lesser quality and then mark up at an, an unreasonable price. And so for people who had really grown their businesses through sheer hustle and grind and hard work, it got to a point where if somebody could copy what you were doing, all your efforts seemed redundant. So seeing my parents go through that process of, first of all, losing over a million dollars in one instance where somebody robbed them off and bringing themselves back up as if nothing happened was just a clear indication that in order for you to be successful in entrepreneurship, you have to have grit and perseverance. And perseverance in the sense that by the time my parents were becoming established, they'd already done this business for 20 years. You know, like one of my mentors typically says entrepreneurship is five to 10 to 15 years in the making. And the success you see from somebody means that they've been grinding and hustling for a very long time. It's not just instant success. So those are the two things I would say. And it's something that really motivates me and pushes me up until today because I never look at the instant results. I'm always thinking long term and building my business from from a futuristic standpoint rather than our current situation right now. Well, with that in mind, Maureen, what was what was one of the first moments that you felt like you were starting to to plant those seeds for later later benefit? Um, I would say when I was a teenager. So having parents who are entrepreneurs meant that we never got anything handed over to us. So we always had to work for anything we wanted. So as a, as a small girl, of course, you want to do your hair, you want to do your nails. My mom and dad never gave me money. They actually told me to go and earn my money in order to afford the lifestyle that I wanted to have. And that's at the age of 13 and 14. So that's when my first entrepreneurship experience started. So I started selling, um, I got part, I got in, to network marketing. So I started selling cosmetics from the UK. The company is called FM Cosmetics, which is a network um, network marketing company. And through that, I, I learned how you need to have customers, you need to have an audience, you need to start building a brand for people to trust you. And I made a few, I would, I would say I made a few dollars and then the business collapsed because I didn't even know what I was doing. Then soon after I started a bakery, I was just learning how to hustle, sell money, sell products. The business collapsed and I realized something is not right. I was like, why am I doing all this and I'm not able to make any progress? And that's when I started um, getting interested in understanding branding and marketing because also my dad would say the reason why he's not been able to grow and scale his business as fast as he would have wanted it to grow is because he didn't understand branding and marketing. So with that, I decided to pursue um, higher education in business analytics, also known as marketing analytics. And that's what made me move over to the U.S. So it was really coming from a place where you saw that the lack of understanding Yes. of marketing and branding was what fueled your desire to really master this field exactly. in order to apply it to your own life and find your own success within your own ventures. Yes, exactly. And also to help my parents. You see, like what I mentioned, this is like coming from my grandpa I was like, I can't be the person to see my parents' businesses going down. So I also had that determination to let his legacy continue living on. See, a couple of things about this really stand out to me. First, what you just mentioned is 
this is why I like marketing because you, you can take somebody who works really hard and has a genuinely great product or service, but you have to find the right way to pitch it and the right way to spread those messages in order for them to be able to, to really achieve their full potential. And it is so incredibly satisfying when you find somebody who's got that potential and you're able to actually help them meet it just by some, some general good marketing best practices like that just feels really good. Um, I, I'm also struck by the fact that you mentioned you had had a couple of a handful of different business experiences before you ultimately landed on on something that you were going to do next, which in in your case here was education. Because I find um, a lot of people, it's like business number five that takes off. It's never like the first iteration of something unless they're really really lucky. And this seems to be the case regardless of like how much you're going into business with in terms of experience or um or money or background like you just have to try things and a lot of them won't work yeah absolutely because also when you think about it you have to have the entrepreneurship um mentality right an entrepreneur is a risk taker so when you're trying and testing things you have an appetite for risk and I think just growing up in an environment where I can put money, see if I'm going to make a return, if I don't jump onto the other thing is pretty what has kept me going because a lot of people actually give up, you know? Yeah, yeah, because it, it, it's it's scary, it's difficult, <laughs> and there's a lot of valid reasons to give up as well. But, um, well, I guess this goes back to grit too, doesn't it? Yes. You have to have the grit to keep going. Yep. You have to. And you have to have a, a purpose that's bigger than you. It's not about the money. So that purpose for you started with relocating from Kenya to the U.S. to pursue that higher education. Yes, to go, to, to go back to Africa and save the businesses that everyone is trying to start but never become successful. That's awesome. I, I love that. So when you came to the U.S. and you started pursuing your education, what were the things that happened following your degree? Because it says here you got a master's degree in marketing or in business analytics. So in the time after your education, what were you able to do to start working for some of these companies like Lay's to L'Oreal and Dove? Um, so the first thing I, I was really lucky, I got an opportunity to work with Nielsen company. It's a market research agency. And this company really supports the big brands in everything. It can be marketing, it can be um, bringing new products to life. So I was fortunate enough to sit in the predictive analytics division where clients would come in. So for example, Dove would come in with an idea and they really wanted to, for example, they wanted to test like an in-shower gel body lotion. And I was part of the team that would test the feasibility of that concept. So we're really doing market research with consumers. We're really using the internal preparatory tool to predict the sales of the product in the first year, the second year, the third year, and really give the company recommendation on whether this concept would be successful. So I did that for so many companies and that gave me an understanding of what it actually takes to bring a product to life you know and soon after i was like okay now i have an understanding once i'm on the client uh, on the agency side i really want to now work on the client side as 
a brand consultant supporting like a big brand manager. And that's what led me to move over to PepsiCo under the Lay's brand. And there I really worked on what it takes to get into retail, what metrics buyers actually look for, what it takes to be a category leader. So you're talking to brands, you're talk, you're working with brands like Frito-Lay, which really own the salty snack category, what it looks like to defend your share, what it looks like to position a brand for success, packaging redesign. And I really got the entire 360 degree view of building a brand from the ground up and also making sure that a big brand still maintains its market leader status and never loses its equity. I think the one thing that's starting to stand out really early on in this for me, Maureen, is like what you said, the grit that you have to really take the time to sharpen all of these tools, not just focusing on one area, because I'm sure you could have stayed at PepsiCo or Dove doing predictive analytics, and you would have been just fine. But you're taking these experiences that you've had with these companies, learning these different skill sets to apply them to what you want to see happen within your own life and within the people, like your sphere of influence, wanting to go back to Kenya and make an impact on these businesses that don't have that understanding. I think it's really valuable to work in a lot of different places so that you can develop that kind of breadth of experience, because that that's what makes a difference between somebody who can come up with a really great strategy in one super specific area and somebody who can execute a bigger, larger plan regarding an entire company's strategy. Because you have to have that context in order to be able to make an informed plan in the first place. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and for me, I think my last experience um, at my uh, the company I worked for was really getting the opportunity to see how a small brand becomes a big brand within a big company. Because oftentimes the biggest objection I get when I'm working with clients is, hey, you've worked with very big brands. How, are you, how am I sure that you can translate those big strategies to my small company? And I'm, I'm like, I've actually worked for a really small brand, like literally from an idea to, to shelf. And it just taught me that the principles are the same. Nothing changes. Marketing and branding is exactly the same. It's just that do you have the time and the patience to execute and and bring that to life? You know, this is a perfect segue to my next question for you, Maureen, which is something that I saw on your sheet, which is you teach entrepreneurs big brand strategies. Mm -hmm. What do big brands know that growing brands might not know? Big brands know the importance of being the voice of their customer. That's number one. Like big brands really put customers at the epicenter of everything they do, of every strategy, of every innovation, of every marketing campaign, while the small brands don't think about that. Small brands are very quick to looking at what somebody else is doing and copying that instead of looking at who are they serving? What are they looking for? What do they really, really want? That's the number one difference. The second thing is big brands are very big at humanizing their brand. What do I mean by that? They try to personify their brand like a person so that they can bring that human connection that every customer is looking for. While the small brands are really looking, they just want to be behind the scenes, behind the curtain, doing the tiny tweaks on their website, doing the tiny tweaks on their packaging, but that's not what actually leads to a sale. Big brands will, you, you, you can look at a big brand 
social media platform and you'll notice that you do a lot of user generated content granted they have a billion dollar budget but they're paying human beings influencers people who um resonate with their ideal client to be the face of their brand to communicate and pass on that message but as small business owners we don't want to do that it's there's a fear of being the person behind a brand there's a fear of standing for your mission there's a fear of speaking up and just doing the work that needs to be done you know so <laughs> that's 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 a thing that I've I've seen and then the other thing that I I've seen big brands do very well is they really articulate what they fight for and why they exist and they do it really really well so for example Dove's mission what what they really really fight for and what they promote is to ensure that uh women of all uh, shapes sizes feel seen and and are heard and you can see that in their marketing campaign but br- uh, small brands don't have that clarity on their mission and their messaging so everything just feels like a hodgepodge of things and then they get so confused on as to why people are not buying from them mm-hmm. and i i feel like you can also see this just in the variety of the products that they have as well and I, I also feel like you there's really no excuse not to have at least some level of human touch in a brand. Because let's take, for example, to the ultimate extreme, something like an airline, which survives through mergers and acquisitions and has had its identity change multiple times over and over and over again. And in addition to that, it's regulated um, so tightly in what they're allowed to do. Even on top of all that, you get on any Delta flight, any American flight, any any flight anywhere, and they it's always going to be stirring music while they're playing. You know the the video that shows you like how to survive with a life preserver on it and, and stuff like that. They're all going to be doing something on social media. They're all going to be picking font and these kind of fonts and, and colors that reinforce whatever it is they're going for, which is often just like competence. We are going to keep you safe. That kind of thing. And even like an absolute extreme, a place that should be completely hostile to any form of personality, they still manage to find a way to make it happen. So Pearson, if if you um, don't have a segue, I I actually have something that I'm curious about. Go for it. Um, So as I understand it, you specialize in product marketing instead of say um, business to business. Can you talk a little bit about how, um, say, business-to-consumer marketing is different than business-to-business? Oh, yes. Yes. So I do a lot of direct-to-consumer. So business-to-business marketing is very different from business-to-consumer marketing because even the end user is different. So for direct-to-consumer, you're selling to the final person who will actually um, receive the product. Well, for business to business, you're, you're selling to like another institution or to a team. When it comes to the marketing strategies, B2B tends to be a lot more relational, right? It's a longer buying cycle. You, you have to build that relationship. Do It could be either through a networking event, keep in touch, and then later on the sale will happen. For the direct-to-consumer, a lot of times, especially because I work with beauty brands, the marketing is really reinforcing your credibility, reinforcing why I should buy the product, showing people how to use it, telling people what the results are, in addition to your other other people or your customers 
um, sharing their experience. So it tends to be a lot more personal and, and, and informal compared to B2B. That makes a lot of sense. And also, I, I think it's just because if, if you say, for example, that business to business is marked by having a longer sales cycle, uh, with business consumer, that means you've got to get their attention pretty quickly. So I would yes. imagine that a lot of the relationships that you nurture in B2B with B2C, that looks like you create the relationship in a way with branding, with just the simple tools of communication you have just to get somebody's attention right there in the moment for that snap decision or that decision seven days later. Yes, absolutely. That's why uh, messaging for B2C is very important. It's actually the first thing that you need to do. You need to clarify and hone in on your messaging before you even start selling something because it's that messaging that will actually convert and sell. Now, that's interesting because I, I feel like the messaging that you would put out there would depend on uh, whether your product's brand new or um, whether it's established. So how would you say that um, messaging should be messaging strategies rather should be determined based on life cycle of a product? I actually think messaging is not determined by the life cycle of the product. Messaging for B2C is determined by what the product actually does and who it's intended for. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you are selling, a, you have a snack company and you're selling um, snack boxes and you're selling these snack boxes to women because you know that moms have a very busy life. They're just always on the go. So you've packaged these snack boxes to include snacks that give them the right nutrition and actually satisfy them while they're running up and down. If that's your messaging or if that, oh, sorry, if that's your product, then your messaging should be tailored around that. So for example, if you're doing a campaign, you're going to do a campaign around a mom hustling in the morning to get their kids to daycare or to school. Well, that they get stuck in traffic, they're really hungry. Instead of doing uh, doing a Starbucks drive-thru or a Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru and get something that's really dense in calories, you can pull out the snack kit, your brand snack kit, that already includes, let's say, a protein bar, an oatmeal bar, and some blueberries that would actually give them the right nutrients that they need for their body at that particular time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good example. Maureen, so... I see down here on the suggested questions, you have a phrase, never abandon what could be a seven-figure brand for a six-figure paycheck. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that? Oh my God. So that that phrase was coined by, it was coined by my mentor. So we talked about how my entrepreneurship journey started with my parents, but then also we talked about how I got the opportunity to work with large organizations. And I did now get the chance to have a paycheck, get comfortable, have a constant stream of income. And we that comes some comfort, that comes some, some level of, okay, I've made it, I think I'm good. So at that point in time, I was I started my business as a side hustle. So I was working full time and my business was my hobby, like all the other businesses I've always been. But for some reason, this business um, really took off at lightning speed. And it got to a point where it didn't make sense for me to have my full-time job, to be honest. But I couldn't let go of the safety, certainty, and security. And so my mentor told me, Maureen, you have to let go of your six-figure paycheck to build your seven-figure empire. 
So technically what that what that saying uh, says is you have to let go of safety, certainty and security to run after your dreams, chase your your purpose and actually to transform the lives that you've always desired to do so. And the only way you can do that is just by taking a leap of faith and allowing everything to unfold and really becoming the person that is that that requ- that is required to be successful so literally behaving like you have the confidence so that you can attract that into your life as someone who's taken that leap of faith within the last couple of months myself i i got to say it makes a huge difference to have that additional time in your day and it also makes a huge difference to be doing one thing at a time just one big goal to focus on in your in your career it's it's really, really hard to overstate how much that changes the way that you can approach problems and how much easier it becomes to do what you need to do. Now, with that in mind, a lot of people, of course, are afraid, understandably, of leaving their positions, um, of leaving behind, say, a, a six-figure paycheck or even a nice five-figure one. Um, so so what, what signs would you say um, that somebody should pay attention to that would tell them that they've got a potential seven-figure brand on their hands? If you have if you have learned a, a system of making sales and having leads and customers, then you are ready to leave. But then also you have to ask yourself, why are you scared? And one exercise that I typically um, tell my clients to do is this: when you're when you're working for someone else, you have a job description and you have duties responsibilities and roles that you have to make sure that you accomplish in a month, a year, you name it. How about you create that same job description for your company? Are you going to be the person doing marketing and sales? If so, what does that look like on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, and at the end of the year? And stick to that job description like you would stick to your full-time job and the results actually follow. Because in entrepreneurship, if you if you take the right actions, results typically follow. And that's why I usually say track your lead metrics because if whatever you're inputting will be the output. So if you're inputting fear, you're just not going to get any results. But if you're inputting action, greed, like being the person who's ready to bet on themselves, being the person that's showing up for their business like they would show up for their full-time job, inevitably the results actually follow. I think it's really good advice to write down like a job description, the kind of stuff that you're responsible for and what you need to do. Because I, I think one of the things that scares people other than just losing the pay and the, and the benefits that, that they would have with a normal job is it's, it's really difficult to know what to do. At, at least if you don't go out of your way to specify what your goals are and how you plan on getting there. But the lucky thing on the flip side is that once you actually figure out what you're looking for, write it down, and then back into how to actually get to that, you remove so much of the anxiety that comes inevitably with extra freedom. And then it's, well, it's still a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun too. Exactly. And then also, if you're really scared, invest in mentorship and support. Like there's so many communities that people can be a part of right now, invest in that. And then you'll be in a room with people going through the same thing. And you'll actually realize I'm actually not alone because a lot of times the fear stems from 
thinking that you're going through this by yourself. But to be honest, there's so many people who are experiencing what you're actually experiencing. Yeah, I I like this too, because um, one of the things that kept me going was I actually met a friend online just over a mutual interest in board games. It was really just that. I come find out he's like the he's like a hotshot UX consultant and had made his own business and everything. And we got to chatting about that, and all of a sudden I realized, oh wow, I'm not the only one doing this. And we gradually, just by chatting amongst ourselves, found more people who were doing the same thing. And eventually, without even like a formal program or anything, we had this little community where we could talk about this stuff. And coaching, of course, it, if you've got the means, that's also fantastic too because that um that also can help you stay accountable as well so there's something about having the um the routine and the and the actual procedure around it that makes it easier to to keep your promises to someone else and Pearson, i don't want to monopolize i want to ask a little bit more about your passion project, the Taji Foundation. And am I saying that right? Is it Taji? That's correct. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like and what you do for that? Oh, yes. Yes. My passion project that started about six years ago. So Taji Foundation is a nonprofit organization that focuses on mentoring boys in Kenya by sponsoring their education through high school so they can get into colleges of their dreams. So particularly colleges outside of Kenya. The reason I do this is because the boy child is really like the backbone (laughs) of the family in Kenya. And a lot of the generational wealth stems from them. And in places like Kenya, education is pretty much the gateway to anything you want in life. And if you don't have the means to go to school, if you don't have the means to access information, granted, sort of quote unquote, I don't want to say this, but your life is sort of doomed. So seeing uh, when I was getting married, I saw the pressure that my husband had to go through, making sure that he can pay my dowry, making sure that he can talk to my father and ensure that he can support me. I I started thinking about that little boy who just cannot go to school, but he's brilliant enough. And that's when I started like really putting money aside and sponsoring their high school education so they can get into college and open up their their lives so they can follow their dreams. That's so incredible. And you've been doing this for six years now? Yeah. So yeah, officially six years now, but I started with like my income. I would put aside like $250 every paycheck, do this. And then now that I fully have a company, it's really part of the company's mission and purpose. So every sale we make, we contribute 5% to that foundation. Wow. So it sounds like you've been able to make quite an impact over the last six years. Yes, yes, yes. I would say yes. That's incredible. That's why I said this business. I keep telling people this business is bigger than me. It has to feel very poetic to give back to your, um, to give back to the community in, in such a custom, in, in such a, what, what do I, what to say in, in such a specific way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also because it, like you notice, I'm in mentorship. I have programs and services that mentor people. Education is a very strong pillar and value that I hold dearly. And I always want to make sure that I put my money where my mouth oh, what is, What's that saying? Put your money where your mouth is or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
I love that. As a it's... sidebar, you should probably never literally put your money where your mouth is when he's discussing. Yeah, that's a very good point. I don't know how many people are actively doing that. That might not make the cut. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to stay in. Nice. (laughs) That's, I mean, that's, it's really incredible, Maureen, that you're able to give back in that, in that regard. And I'm just curious, have you been able, have you been able to go back to Kenya since you've found some of the... What has yeah. that been like to go back and to work with some of these businesses firsthand and share your knowledge now that you're at a place where you can help them grow and take it to a next level? It's it's um it's very humbling for me, but there's so much fascination from their end, you know? But then also on my end, it's more of, man, we are so behind, you know? Like if only people had the right tools, if only people had the right information, we would be so far because like employment in Kenya is, isn't, 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 isn't good. Like people don't make money. So a lot of people depend on their side hustles. And every time I go, I do speaking events, you just see the excitement and the joy that people have to finally learn literally something small as how to market on social. You know, so it makes you realize how sometimes when you're in developed countries, we take things for granted. You 100%. Know? We take 100%. things for granted and people that just want, how do I put my product on Instagram? How do I write a caption? Very basic things. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't take a lot to be successful. It just takes you knowing what to do and being connected to the right person. So let me let me ask you this, and this isn't from the sheep, but if you were talking to someone that's just getting their business up and going, what would you say the three most important things to take into account are for that person that might not know where to start or what they should prioritize? What would you tell that person who's looking to take that jump and get their business off the ground? So the first thing I would say is really spend time and build build the identity for your brand. And what do I mean? I want you to sit down, write, who are you, who do you want to sell this product for? Two, sorry, what should you, back up, (laughs) go back and build the identity for your brand. What does this include? Who are your customers? What's the benefit of your product? And then also, what does your customer typically do on a day-to-day basis? What does their lifestyle look like? Once you've really honed in on that, I want you to start spending time where your ideal customers are. There's so many Facebook groups. There's so many forums in in and out of social. Really go and do market research, survey what they're talking about, survey what they're looking for, and start to create messaging and content out there that replicates what they're looking for. And then build a community. Don't go and buy product. Don't go and get inventory when you haven't built a community because you have to have a community of people that are ready and willing to buy. And you can only have that community when you nurture people and you're sharing what you're selling, why you're doing what you're doing, what's the value of your product and what you're trying to achieve, what's the the, the transformation. That's what I would actually tell somebody who's um, starting their brand. And then the other thing I would say is sell your product Anywhere, however you can. Just don't depend on e-commerce. Go to pop-up shops, go to events, do truck sales or trunk shows, whatever 
where you can sell your product, just sell it. You just don't have to be dependent on social in order to make money. That's really good advice too. that last part in particular, because I think people forget about how many distribution channels there actually are. You're, you're right. You don't have to go through social. And that's what a lot of people do when they're first trying to get something up. They'll, they'll make a nice product. They'll make an Instagram that push people to their Etsy account. And that's about all they'll do. In reality, it's like, there's all these gigantic stores and they account for probably still like 85% of commerce, brick and mortar retail. I, I haven't seen the latest statistics and uh, goodness knows the pandemic probably changed some things, but even still, I mean, brick and mortar is huge. Um, and you don't, and it's not all like Walmarts either. It's, it's all these mom and pop shops. And a lot of times you can just go up there um, and talk to a cashier and you can have a purchasing manager talking to you like in 15 minutes. A lot of the time, it's not as hard as you'd think. You can at least get their email addresses. So lots of opportunities available that um, are just like slightly below the surface of what's obvious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just And it goes back to you have to be willing to put yourself out there. Absolutely. And, and I feel like um, taking cold emails as, as an example, or, or, or maybe even cold calls, because those are more extreme. People still do cold calls. It's not necessarily the best way to sell. I, I, I'm not saying it's like the best way for most businesses. But the point is that you can make 100 calls. And if you get one or two sales out of 100, and you're really trying to create something out of nothing, then that one or two out of a hundred is is perfectly fine. I mean, they'll they'll even ninety eight or ninety nine hangups don't matter. It's the sales that actually do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it's so funny you said that because people are scared of doing cold calling, but they actually do it on social. They send mm-hmm. cold DMs to people. Think oh, about the cold works. LinkedIn messages you get, or the cold Facebook direct mm-hmm. messages you get, or Instagram. You're still selling cold. That's yeah. a good point. <laughs> And I'll, I'll actually yeah, like put a, a figure really on that. In, in 2017, I was trying to build up a, basically a chat server for people who were working on board games. And, and, and basically, like there was a whole long-term plan and it ended up working out. But like 8 to 10% of people that I messaged would actually show up and join. And we're talking about like, we're talking about Discord. We're talking about a software that you actually have to go out of way, your way and download if you don't have it. It's not even as common as Slack or Skype. And... Eight to ten percent—that's kind of a lot. So you'd be surprised, like if you've got a good pitch, um, you'd be surprised how 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 readily people will 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 take you up on that sometimes. So, Maureen, transitioning a little bit from business, one of the things that we like to do towards the end of the show is we like to ask people take business, all of your hustles away. What is what are you passionate about? What do you spend your time doing when you're not working? What makes you feel? CrossFit. CrossFit. Oh, Oh my God. You'll find me in the gym every single day just lifting heavy weights. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) How long have you been into CrossFit? I've been doing CrossFit for 10 years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I love intense weights. I love competitive lifting. I love competitive competition. Literally, that's what you'll find me doing every single day, 6 a.m. I'll be at the gym doing CrossFit. Wow. And do you yeah, so compete I with it? Um, I did uh, like four years ago. Then I realized, no, I actually just like to do it for the fun of it. And also the results look very good. So. <laughs> <laughs> So when the results show, you're like, you know what? Let me keep going. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
CrossFit yeah. is intense. I I don't think I'm able to to do it without a a long bit of cardio prep beforehand. I don't know, dude. I, I feel like you get you you and I, if we both like super committed, <laughs> we can probably do it. <laughs> oh, I just I love that. So we- I'll do that Monday to Friday, and then um, I've started getting into long distance biking. So I literally this weekend I did about twenty seven miles. So mm-hmm. trying to build another hobby on the side. If if I'm not doing that, you'll find me having some scotch whiskey by the patio somewhere. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. Good choice. Well, you have so many amazing things going on, Maureen. It's really, it's really incredible to hear not just what you're doing now, but the journey that you went on to get to where you're at and all of the, the trials and tribulations that you had to go through in order to be able to go back to Kenya and provide these people with the knowledge that you had acquired over the years and really try to make a difference in other people's lives, which seems to be the most consistent theme throughout this episode is how can you help other people make the biggest difference in their life? Yes. And I would uh, pause your listeners to think about that because I feel like anyone can do that. It doesn't take much. You don't need a lot of money. You just need to have that uh, passion and desire. And aside from the, you know, the CrossFit and the Scotch whiskey and distance <laughs> biking, you know, I'm, I would venture to say one of your biggest passions is making a difference in people's lives and helping 100%, people. And, 100%. You know, it's when you have that passion and that's at the forefront of your mind and your efforts, then you, you touched on it earlier, but the, the money kind of follows, you know, yes. when you believe in when you believe in what you're doing and you believe in why you're doing it, then everything else falls into place afterwards. Mm -hmm. One of my mentors told me that if you make other people's dreams come true, your dream will come true as well. That's really, that's really good. I don't, I've never heard that, but that's awesome. That's a, that's a really good saying. Mm -hmm. So if you're into entrepreneurship, do it. It's not entrepreneurship. If you are providing value, if you're providing a service, do it for a bigger purpose, like have a deeper why. If you go in for the money, the money just doesn't show up and you will be so demotivated and you want to give up. I've seen it. I've had people who come in as clients, they have this great idea, but because their why isn't hard enough or deep enough, they just end up giving up. Yeah, the profit motive alone just isn't the greatest long-term motivator I've found because like once you cross a certain threshold where your basic needs are met then what I mean really what do you do what do you do with yourself around around Chattanooga it's like once you cross like I would say like 55,000 or something I mean it's not that much in a year it's like what do you do most of your needs are paid for I mean you can buy luxury goods after that but uh um you you need to have the bigger thing because it'll it makes every day a lot more meaningful than I am going to run up a bunch of billable hours and, you know, run bills on Friday and then do the same thing next week. So much better when you're actually, you know, helping somebody make their dreams come true. See, that's so much more motivating. Mm-hmm. And then you have something that you can pat yourself on the back for because, because people think that if I hit, let's say if I hit a hundred thousand, I'm going to feel different. 
honey, you're just going to see the same <laughs> money you in your won't. bank account and then chase <laughs> for the next thing. <laughs> you know? No, no, you won't. And, and honestly, it's like if you're running a business, it, like the day you actually cross that threshold, you probably won't actually realize you did until you run the numbers like three weeks later. <laughs> until your CPA comes and tells see, you, oh, you did this. <laughs> That's the thing. People are, are like, oh, when I be when I'm a millionaire, it's gonna be it's gonna be a whole big thing. It's like, well, unless you like check your net worth every day, you're not even gonna notice. It's gonna exactly. just happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I usually say don't chase the elusive happiness. Hmm. That's a that's interesting. Don't chase the elusive happiness. I also feel like that's the hardest part not to do though, is because I feel like we are all hardwired to chase after these big, big overarching lifelong goals of extreme wealth and incredibly successful businesses, but it's lost upon people to take the time to focus in on each step and why that leads to that overarching happiness. Mm-hmm. 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 And maybe, maybe for me, it's different because I, I have family members who live on less than a dollar a day. So every time I go home every year, I see the struggle and I'm always asking myself, what am I complaining about? Sure. Well, yeah. That's incredible perspective to get, especially when you're in the position that you're in where you're, you're working with multi-million dollar brands and you're, you're finding success within your business. And then you go home and you see, okay, well, you know, what is, what is all of this to me when there are people that are doing that have happiness and that are living on far less or, you know, it, it really does put it into perspective. Awesome. Maureen, I don't have any other questions for you. Brandon, do you have anything else? No, I actually think this is a wonderful note to end on. And if you would like to find Maureen online, you can find all social media links as well as a link to Startward consulting in the show notes down below. Perfect. Well, Guys, take the time to leave a comment. Leave us a like. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you check out your podcast, we're on it. Give us a listen. Once again, thank you so much, Maureen, for taking the time to come on our show. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing your story. And for Brandon, I'm Pearson, and this is the Marketing is the Product podcast, and we'll see you guys again soon.